بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگس آف اللہ بی اپن یو او ویلکم ٹو انادر ایپیسوڈ آف دی ڈرائیو ٹائم شو ہے آن دا وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو ٹوڈے از ٹیوزڈے دی تھرٹیتھ آف جنوری ٹوینٹی ٹوینٹی فور فور منٹس پاس It's quite, it's, it's quite intriguing how it's becoming more common nowadays than, uh, than probably what it was before as well. And that is what we go, we, one of the things that we're going to be talking about in the second part of the show is cancer. And the alarming rate or the fascinating thing that, that I wanted to, to speak about today is particularly in the sense that it is rising in young people. How is it rising in young people? Why is it rising in young people? That is the question. That is the big question. It's the million dollar question. And there's a lot of different factors that we can talk about. There's a lot of different factors with, with, uh, with, when, it comes to, when it comes to cancer, when it comes to different forms of cancer and how people contract different forms of cancer as well, it becomes quite alarming in some rates as well that youngsters are being prone to this as well. And it's not only that the elders, the adults who are or middle-aged citizens who are getting or contracted cancer, whatever form of cancer it may be, but youngsters are also, young people are also falling prey to this, to this def- devastating illness as well. That is something that, are, that I'm going to be talking about towards the latter part of the show, in the second part of the show, but in the first part of the show, talking about poverty. And the reason why we're talking about poverty, or one of the reasons, is because poverty is everywhere. We're living in the 21st century. But the thing is, is that poverty is still here. Not just in the, not just in the, in the, in the poorer countries, not just in the developing countries, but it's in the West as well. And a lot of people think, no, how can we be, you know, we're living here in the West, everyone has access to to you know everyone's got a car everyone's got a house everyone's got a place to go to a place that they call home but the fact of the matter is is that poverty is still one of the things which is quite prevalent and just from the very beginning according to the united nations if current trends continue right if we keep on going at the same pace that we as we're going right now 575 million people will still be living in extreme poverty that's just, that's not talking about just poverty in terms of oh I can't pay the bills or or you know I don't I don't have access to 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 the heating system it's not just that it's extreme levels of poverty and only one third of countries will have halved their national poverty levels by 2030. We've still got six years for that. But we're talking about poverty. We're talking about how we're going to end poverty. A lot of people raise this question. A lot of governments, when they come into power. I even remember when Theresa May was the, was the prime minister here in the UK. She even promised that when she, was, when she was the prime minister, that she's going to try her best to actually combat poverty in terms of those people who are sleeping rough. She said that she is going to try and help those people who are sleeping rough, who are homeless, 
to help those people so that they don't so that they do have a house so that they do have a place where they call home they do have a a a roof on top of their head they do have access to food and water but the thing is is that if we continue going down the same path only one third as i just mentioned only one third of countries will have not even not even i'm not even talking about the majority only made half only halved the national poverty levels and that's also by by more than five years that's by 60 or 2030 but that's why it's even more applicable now it's even more important that we talk about this now the united nations states that the covid19 pandemic disruptions in global supply chains and the war in ukraine sent shock waves around the world as pandemic related global restrictions were eased suppliers were unable to meet the increase in consumer demand and prices including food and energy so the cost of living crisis has been particularly devastating for low income households because they spend a large share of their incomes on these staples that's that's what the united nations has actually stated because of this covid-19 we have had that 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 massive effect on all of us especially the working class especially those people who are working minimum wage especially those people those households who a couple of decades ago it, it was just the man going outside you know putting bread and butter on the table but now it's the whole household it's the father it's the mother it's the children as well trying just trying to get by trying to pay rent i know people as well this is a living example this is it's not something that we we just talk about and it's far fetched this is legit this is this is what's happening right now 0208687778 is the number for you to call tell me what you think about this if you're going through a struggle if you're going through this troublesome times unprecedented times if we are if we're really really struggling how are you coping with it what are you doing to put food and butter on the table how are you providing with your family 0208687778 is the number for you to call you, know, we, you can also tweet us as a voice of islam uk as well i'm not sure if it's actually called that now but still if you want to exercise or whatever a voice of islam uk is our is our handle now poverty is not just a lack of income it's it's and that's what that's one that's what I want to talk about as well because a lot of people think that poverty is just about just about you know you don't have enough food your income is very low you don't have that much money so that you can't you know if you don't have enough money you can't go out and buy food you can't buy water you can't pay your bills it's not just about that yes that is a major part when we talk about poverty that is a major concern that is a major you know stockholder when it comes to poverty but poverty is more than that as well it's about lack of education when we're not educating our children when we're not putting the right amount of information the good information credible information and educating them we're putting them in poverty we're destroying them with our own hands poverty is not just about food it's not just about it's not just about your 
you know, it's not just about your wealth, your money. It is about education. Of course, food is one of the major things as well. Healthcare is also very important when it comes to when it comes to poverty, shelter, and that goes. You know, all of these things are, of course, they 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 interlinked. Shelter being one of those things. A lot of people, as I mentioned, a lot of people are sleeping rough. We're living here in the UK, and people in in central London, where central London is supposed to be one of the the hubs. This, you know the centre, the centre of the world, not just the centre of the UK, but the centre of the world, is classified, right? There's people still living. There's people living homeless over here. There's people living without a roof on top of their head. A couple of weeks ago, it was minus five degrees, minus four degrees, minus five degrees. People, I, I literally saw people outside, not just one or two. Even I w- literally, this is. Quite close to where I lived, there's a the you know there's a high street. Well, I was walking on the high street, and the temperature was was about minus two or three at night time, and I didn't see one. I saw about three or four people on different places on that same street who were sleeping rough, who were sleeping on the on the you know on 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 the on the pavement, who were sleeping on. Next to the, you know, next to the library or here and there, trying to find place, trying to find something to, to cover them. How 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 is that the case? I mean, that's just one street I'm talking about, and that's not even central London. I'm talking about when we go to central London, there's people over there who are sleeping rough. How is that? Why is that? It's not just about providing them with uh, with shelter. It's not just about f- providing them with a house that they can call a home. It's not just about that. Sometimes it's the reason why they choose to to actually go out on the streets. Sometimes they do have a house that they can go to. Sometimes they, you know, they they they, they leave home. They don't want to live with their wherever they were living before. They don't want to live with their families. They don't want to live how or where you know, the place that they were living previously. But because something happened, tragedy happened, an argument, this or that could be drug related, could be anything, could be financial issues. Whatever issues that they faced, this the outcome was that they want to, they want they, they they wanted to get away from all of that and they and they just went to the street, and they want to live on the street. They want to be homeless, or I'm not saying they want to be homeless, but essentially they they choose to go out on the street because they don't want to go back to their to the previous lives. Now the question over here is that yes, those people are sleeping rough. Yes, those people are putting themselves in danger. Yes, those people are putting the, putting their health on the line as well. But the the thing is, is that as I mentioned before, it's not it's not always about providing a house where people can live. It's not always about providing a providing shelter, providing food. It's not always about that. It's about getting to the bottom line and figuring out their problems, trying to resolve people's problems. That is the rehabilitation. That is what we can do that is something which which we should be doing and unless and until we have specialized people profession professionals who can actually go out there and speak to those people literally speak to those people encourage them give them that comfort and tell them look you know whatever you faced is is a worldly problem is it is a problem and it's a it's a real problem fine that's true but 
we can get over that. There's different ways to get over different problems. There's financial issues. There's different things that we can do to help your financial problems. If it, if there is a domestic issues, we can sort that out as well. We can try to sort that out. But the thing is, is that when we don't have that, when we don't have specialists, when we don't have people who even care about those people, when we just look at, you know, a homeless person just look the other way and don't even look back at that person and we don't even have that sort of remorse or we don't even have that sort of something inside us that, you know, this person is sleeping rough, let me give him something to eat. Let me give him a drink, let me give him a hot drink or whatever. You know, if we don't have that within us, if we don't have that empathy, that that compassion, that sympathy for for the other person who's living on the street, then that tells us what sort of person we are, isn't it? Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Tell me what you guys. Tell me what happens. Tell me what what, what you guys are doing, uh, and how do you guys? How do you, as the listener, if you see someone sleeping rough, what is the first thing that you would think about, and how would you try your best to help that person as well? As I mentioned, zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. Please tell me what you think about this as well. Now. These are the most pressing problems that we that the world is facing today. And while the world has has made immense progress against extreme poverty, but even after two centuries of progress, extreme poverty extreme poverty is still the reality for every tenth person in the world. Yes, that's right. Every tenth person in the world is living in poverty. Is living in extreme poverty. Now, what can we do to to eradicate that? What can we do to finish that? We do talk about, oh yes, we freed the slaves. Oh yeah, Abraham Lincoln came and he freed the slaves, whatever, whatever. But what did he actually do? How did he actually go about that? You just what? And then at a, at a click of a finger, all of the all of the slaves were free. Is that the real way to to to, to free slaves? Is that the proper way? Is that the proper way to to if somebody has been or if a whole generation or multiple generations has been living in poverty for so long and you just say you know what yeah from now on you're free and you expect everything to be fine in the society that's where you're wrong it doesn't happen like that what happens is the real way to free talk to talk about freeing slaves and i know it's a little bit of a tangent but it's a little bit linked i'll link it after that the thing is is that the real way to to free slaves is to teach them first is to make them civilized first is to teach them what the what the what the ground levels are is to teach them what we need to what we need to do what they need to do as well if we educate them if we try to make sure that when they are freed what are they going to do when they're free are they going to be you know are they even going to go into the workforce are they even be you know going to be able to go and live freely? If that's the case, then yes, well and good. Then slowly, 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 but gradually, you can free the slaves, and that is what should be done. But if you just free them like that, there will be chaos. It's the same thing when it comes to when it comes to poverty. You can't just you can't just give a poor person you know ten thousand pounds and let them be okay with it. No. Of course, that's not. It's not going to work out like that. It's. It's not just about money, right? It's about education. It's about their mindset. The holy prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He taught something which was very, very beautiful. 
and I will link that right now with what we're talking about, talking about poverty, right? We're talking about poverty and the freeing of slaves. And the reason why I mentioned that was because when there were defensive wars in those days and the Muslims were forced to actually go in and defend themselves, literally they were forced to do that. Now, obviously, when, when, when there is a war, after the war, there are prisoners of war. Now, those prisoners of war, they were freed if, you know, on the account of if they can give back to society. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, didn't just want to keep them forever. He wasn't a a bloodthirsty, a, a bloodthirsty, a, a bloodthirsty prophet who out, went out there and waged war. Of course he wasn't. These people of the West and these people of other nations, they, they are very quick to criticize the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and say that, oh, he was this and he was that. When they don't even know about the, when they, when they haven't even read about the history, when they don't even know anything about the history. The history is, and I'm about to tell you, is that when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and the Muslims, they went to the wars, those defensive wars, what happened was, was that when the prisoners of war came, he didn't, he didn't ridicule anyone. He didn't taunt anyone. He didn't mock anyone. Nor did the Muslims do. But they were very ready to make those prisoners of war free. One of the ways in which they, they could free themselves was that if they were literate and they could teach the Muslims as well, if they could teach the masses, teach them how to read and write and all of these different things, then they would be freed. Now how great is that? That's basically telling them that you know, you, you, you're a prisoner. But telling to the telling the telling a prisoner that you know if you've got a quality, if you know archery, if you know how to ride a horse, if you know this or if you know that, if you know how to do this and work in the fields, work in a farm, this and that, if you know how to do this and you can teach other people, then that would win you your freedom, and then you can go free. And that was the way. That was the whole process of rehabilitation. That was the whole process of getting out of that, getting out of that. That, that that mindset of I'm, I'm, a, I'm a slave and how do I get back out there in the real world? Because there were real chances for them, unlike here in the West, where they say, yes, we have equal rights and all of this and that. But are they actually equal rights? Are they? You tell me. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. And the reason why I'm talking about this is the same thing when we talk about poverty. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that he told us that it's so important for us to take care of our of our neighbors and make sure that they don't go to sleep hungry. That if you've made some sort of food, if you made food, add a little bit more water into that. Add a little bit more water into that so that it becomes more. And then when you have that much, you can even share it with your friends and family members and your and your neighbors. That is what the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, taught us. That is what Islam teaches us. And people think Islam is a, a religion of the medieval times and not it's not applicable now. Well, we'll let, you know, we'll see. Let's see. These are the teachings of Islam and a lot of people are very quick to criticize. But if you're quick to criticize before even thinking about it, before doing any of your own research, then I'm afraid you're an, igno you're an ignorant person. Now, if you want to know more about Islam, the best way which we, of which you can do that is about reading the life and character of the Holy Prophet of Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, the Chosen One, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And the the way in which the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth caliph 
of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. Every single Friday sermon for for a number of for a number of weeks now, in fact months now, he has been talking about the blessed character of the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. If you want to listen to that, you get more information. And those people who once were against Islam, they, you know, once they, once they, once they once their bosoms opened, Allah the Almighty made them so that they even became Muslims. And they became better Muslims than those people who were born Muslims as well. What a great example is that. Let's listen to an audio clip of the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, as Mirza Masur Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, talking about the issues about uh, in terms of uh, the global issues in terms of poverty let's listen to a brief audio clip which will talk about this our faith demands us to try to urge all people in all parts of the world whether rich or poor whether powerful or oppressed whether religious or irreligious towards peace and justice hence we will continue to play our role uh, in making mankind realize its duty towards respecting and honoring basic human values. The core teaching of Islam is to fulfill the rights of our Creator and to fulfill the rights of our fellow human beings. With these brief words of introduction, I now wish to take this opportunity to speak about some matters that I consider to be of great importance in these turbulent times. In today's world, we often see the major powers and international institutions make schemes or plans that are aimed at bettering the lives of people around the world. In recent times, one of the issues that many politicians and intellectuals have debated and campaigned about is climate change, and specifically a reduction in carbon emissions. Certainly, striving to protect the environment and to look after our planet is an extremely precious and noble cause. Yet, at the same time, the developed world, and especially the world's leaders, should also realize that there are other issues that must be tackled with the same urgency. People living in the world's poorest nations do not concern themselves with the environment or the latest figures on carbon emissions. Rather, they wake up each day wondering if they will be able to feed their children. Their economic plight is truly desperate and their poverty levels are far beyond our comprehension. For example, there are numerous countries where the majority of citizens do not have access to clean drinking water and are forced to survive by using dirty pond water to, full, uh, to fulfill their basic needs. 
even that too is not easily available. Rather, women and children have to travel each day for miles on end to collect water for their families, which they carry home in big vessels balanced on their heads. We must not consider such hardship as other people's problems. Instead, we must realize that the result of such poverty has severe implications for the wider world and directly affect global peace and security. The, fa the fact that children have no option but to spend their days collecting water for their families means that they are unable to go to school or to attain any form of education. They are stuck in a vicious cycle of illiteracy and poverty that is seemingly endless and hugely damaging to society. Today, their poverty and hardship is compounded by modern technology, through which even people living in war-torn or deprived parts of the world are able to see the comfort with which people in developed countries are living and the opportunities that exist for them. Witnessing the great disparity in their circumstances compared to others is cultivating further agitation amongst the local people and these frustrations are being preyed upon by extremists who entice the impoverished with financial reward and by promising a better life for their families. <clears throat> Similarly, the targeting of illiterate youth means that the extremists have free reign to radicalize and brainwash them. The extremists take advantage of the fact that the rulers of those countries have more often than not failed their people. Most <clears throat> regrettably, the ruling classes in war-torn or deprived nations are more concerned about preserving their own status and power than helping alleviate the suffering of their people. The result is that those who have nothing come to view their own corrupt leaders with contempt and see the world's major powers as the enemy. Tragically, we are seeing the horrific effects of this in Muslim countries as well. And it is after observing the desperate state of their countries of origin that some Muslims brought up in the developed world have been radicalized and have perpetrated horrendous terrorist attacks here in the West. <clears throat> Hence, I firmly believe that if we truly wish to protect our world, 
and to ensure we have we, we leave behind a legacy of uh, opportunity for those who follow us it is essential that every effort is made to raise the standards of the developing world. Poor nations must not be looked down upon. Rather, we should consider them as part of our family, our brothers and sisters. By helping the developing nations stand on their own feet and by giving their people opportunities and hope, we will actually be helping ourselves and safeguarding the future of the world. That was His Holiness, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, as Mirza Masroor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper, telling us about poverty, telling us how we can eradicate poverty in the best way as well. Obviously, if we just talk about all the good things that we have in this world, and just continue on with our lives and don't even think about those people who are living in poverty, who are living living in the developing countries. Then those people who are living over there, those people who are living in poverty, they would look because of the social media. Anyone can contact anyone. Anyone can get access to to anyone from a different part of the world. Those people who are living in poverty, those people who are living in the Western in the Western countries, they will be seeing those people. In terms of, you know, the people who are living in the developing countries, the poor countries, they're going to be on social media, they will look at the Western countries and the people living over there and see what lavish lifestyles they're living and how much they're living in ease. But they're still living in a continuous cycle of poverty. Obviously, they will get frustrated. If they have to spend hours upon hours just just to collect water, they don't have access to water. They have to go outside. They have to go for miles and collect water and come back and then it's not just about that, but the water is dirty. The the water is murky and they have to they have to boil it. And then sometimes you have to boil it even again. And then you can use that water. If the children are being told to do that, then what about their education? Obviously they're not going to be educated because they're not going to go to school. If they don't go to school and they have to spend their time doing these different chores, then how would you expect to the, expect them to come out of this bondage of poverty. It's a difficult cycle that they're in. And that is why it's our duty that if we are fortunate to have all of these things, to have the luxuries, to have the basic necessities, look out for our brothers and sisters who are living in other parts of the world, who are living in poverty, and sometimes very, very extreme poverty, that they don't even have access to electricity. They don't have. They don't even have smartphones. They don't even have electricity. They don't even have TVs. They literally have nothing. They live in 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 huts. They live in straw straw houses. And it's that's why that the reason why I'm talking about this is because it's our duty to look out for those people who are living over there as well. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. We're taking a very short break, and right after that. We'll come back and we'll hopefully speak to one of our guests as well. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day.
ولله الأسماء الحسنى فادعوه بها Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see him. He is Al-Latif, he is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him. His light is manifested through His prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon Him, disseminated this light the most. For it was He who had the most perfect perception of God and it was He who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then, should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? Ashhadu an la 
أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu peace and blessings of allah be upon you all welcome back to the drive time show here on the voice of islam radio we're talking about poverty and just poverty as a whole global poverty and how there's injustice on an international scale as well we spoke a little bit about spoke a little bit about the the, the causes of that how people be, you know, get into that cycle of, of 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 poverty as well, whether they're living in the developing countries, whether they're living in the in in the Western countries as well. And we listened to a brief audio clip of uh, of the worldwide head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, as Mr. Masood Ahmad, may Allah be his helper in terms of that as well. But let's speak to our let's speak to our guest who's on the line with us, Ishita Sumra, who's a communications officer with the United Nations World Food Program. And is currently based in Rome, Italy, where the organization is actually headquartered. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining us as well. Now, just to begin with, how would WFP work on stopping hunger and helping our communities which are sort of you know, affected by poverty? Um, so the United Nations World Food Program is the world's largest humanitarian agency fighting hunger. Now, uh, be it in conflict-affected areas or on the f- uh, front lines of extreme climate and also long-term development projects, um, our presence in over uh, 120 countries includes a broad range of activities uh, with the ultimate goal of a world with zero hunger. Hmm. Now, in conflict-affected parts of the world, like Sudan or in Afghanistan, WFP has been supporting communities with life-saving food. Um, and in many cases, uh, the food that we distribute is the only food that families have access to. Right. Now, entire families, babies, children, mothers, all of them depend on us for this uh, food. Now, in areas where markets are functioning, uh, WFP also empowers communities through cash. Now, giving communities cash transfers um, allows them the flexibility to choose what they need and when they need it. Um, Hmm. Sending people uh, money means that they don't need to make uh, impossible trade-offs, you know, like deciding to eat less so that they can keep their children in school. What also happens with cash transfers is that when people spend money in their local markets, it uh, creates jobs and it supports uh, these markets. So in this way, other people also benefit uh, indirectly from the money that WFP is bringing into their economy. And one last thing that I'd like to add is that a large part of our work is also building the resilience of communities. And this is very important in helping them on uh, the path towards uh, self-sufficiency. So they are able to meet their own needs. And more importantly, you know, for example, when a disaster strikes, they don't need the external aid or support but in fact have the means, resources, and skills uh, to respond uh, to the crisis um, and bounce back. Mm. Um, so it is, it is programs like this, it is operations across the globe where we work closely with governments and communities uh, to address um, food insecurity. 
That's really good. That's really good. I mean, obviously, if you have if you have help and assistance available, which is organic, which is your own home produced, and you know, what what more do you want? Obviously, when when we talk about poverty as a as a whole, there are many different challenges which uh, which NGOs, organizations, governments face as well. Talking about your organization, what challenges you know do you do you face when working? about talking about trying to eradicate trying to get rid of uh, uh, hunger now uh, hunger levels are at a record high Hmm. Um, and we have a series of factors to blame for this Uh, this includes conflict uh, economic shocks uh, and climate change uh, that are contributing to this uh, rise now just to give you some numbers Around the world, we have around 333 million people who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Mm. And by this, I'm referring to acute hunger. Um, Now, to put this number into context, this is more than the entire population of the United States. It's a large number. And it is almost 200 million above the pre-pandemic levels of hunger. And I do remember you mentioned, you know, COVID-19, the pandemic being... You know, one of the driving factors, and it, it and uh, we we are seeing hunger levels rise. Uh, you know, since the pandemic. Now, while hunger levels are at uh, are touching record levels, at the same time, you know, donor funding hasn't been able to keep pace with the growing needs, and uh, WFP's own operating costs have also soared as uh, you know commodity prices have spiked. And once again, you did refer to this on your show as well. You mm. know, cost of living and prices spiking. Mm. So what what we are seeing and what this means for us is that um, there are now more people who need our support, but we have less money to deliver our assistance. Uh, And what this uh, practically means is that we are in our operations globally seeing ration cuts, whether it's from Syria to Somalia. Um, so we've been forced to leave those people who are less vulnerable or, you know, moderately hungry, still hungry, still in crisis category, uh, but moderately hungry, as we call it, and focus our assistance on those who are most vulnerable. Hmm. Now, right. our analysis shows uh, that leaving the moderately hungry with no assistance means that obviously they are at the risk of falling deeper into hunger yeah, of and therefore needing more humanitarian assistance. Yeah. It is a vicious cycle. Uh, and mm. of course, cutting assistance uh, forces these people to skip meals, consume less nutritious food. And, you know, in the long run, it sows seeds of crisis, of, of nutrition, of instability, of, dis- uh, of uh, displacement. So this is the biggest challenge mm. our agency is facing. I know there's, a, you know, like you, like you just mentioned, there's a lot of different f- factors which, uh, which the agency, which the organizations are actually facing. And it is it is a vicious cycle because you look at one particular party or you look at one particular people and then you know the other one gets neglected and then obviously you have to work a way around it as well. But when we when you talk about working with communities, working with governments to to combat to combat this as well, what are some of the things that that uh, WFP's sort of program? What is in the program to make sure that? everyone can be on that or the majority can be on that sort of that, that base level so that you can address this world hunger at a, at, at a larger scale you have to speak to maybe other organizations other countries from other nations is that something that you guys do 
So, so uh, as the World Food Program, we work, um, you know, across the globe, and we we have partnerships with uh, many organizations. But when it comes to governments, uh, you know, um, in the governments where we have operations, we work very, very closely with governments, and we work with them at the policy level. We support in developing, uh, you know, their capacities, and of course, when needed, we implement programs. Now, talking about you know getting more and more people uh, into that baseline, as you mentioned, mm. uh, social protection programs are a very good example of that, and also a good example of how we work with the governments. Uh, so we work with them to scale up uh, and enhance these programs, and it's these programs that actually safeguard communities and foster their ability uh, of these vulnerable people to meet their food and nutrition uh, needs. And of course, in the face of crisis, if they are protected with these social protection programs, if they have access to them, then of course, they're able to manage the risks better and, and bounce back. Um, in fact, during COVID-19, um, a number of governments called on WFP to either um, introduce new social protection measures or to uh, strengthen existing ones. So we work very closely uh, with our government partners, but also the communities we serve are at the heart of our programming. Mm. Um, so I'll just give you one example from the Sahel, where our WFP's resilience uh, building program, which includes restoring land, building community infrastructure, uh, promoting education and improving nutrition and health, mm. um, also work towards creating jobs for women and young people. Now, in terms of impact, uh, we had around 3.2 million people who benefited for, from the activities in 2023 uh, alone, and nearly 3,200 villages and over, um, I'd say, uh, 280,000 hectares of land have been rehabilitated by Sahelians themselves mm. um, since 2018. So, uh, once again, very absolutely imperative to have communities front and center of our programs and have that government buy-in. So all of us work together towards uh, a shared goal. Ishita, do, do you think sometimes when we, when when big NGOs, big companies talk uh, and have different plans with governments, do you think sometimes that uh, corruption is also one of the major factors which, uh, which, 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 which doesn't sort of, which hindrances becomes a hindrance for the wealth to be or the money to be actually circulated and to be actually spent on those people who are deserving of that as well. Also, when it comes to corruption, there's also this chance of exploitation from other, from external companies, from overseas, where they can come in and force the people, force the youngsters, the children especially, to go out there. And, uh, and and work for them. Do you think these are big, big issues, or do you think that we, you know, companies are talking and 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 governments actually trying their best to 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 address this issue? So, um, I mean, of course, of course, there are many many issues, and and all of us do face uh, challenges when it comes to. Um, you know, uh, ending world hunger. Yes. But as uh, the United Nations World Food Program, we are the United Nations, and we have very strict checks and balances mm. when it comes to delivering our programs. Um, you know, we we ensure transparency. We have uh, helplines in place so people who we are serving know exactly whom to contact if 
they feel um, you know they they have spotted some sort of unfairness yeah. in the system yeah. but it's not only that it's also looking in uh, internally as the world food program we have checks balances trainings follow ups internally for our staff and at all levels mm. whether you are working directly with the community or you're sitting you know in headquarters looking at uh, at at sort of you know different sort of programming issues we we all of us have to go through rigorous training to ensure that you know we meet uh the standards of uh the organization sure that's good that's good how important is it to invest in long term programs that support communities and build that resilience as well um so while addressing of course immediate uh, needs with uh, emergency food assistance uh, is is critical but it it goes hand in hand with longer term programs um that help like i mentioned before that help community build their resilience now what these longer term programs do is that they help create livelihoods and economic opportunities uh they promote so, uh, social cohesion and of course like i again mentioned it they reduce the need uh, for and reliance on humanitarian aid um now i'll give you an example from the 2022 floods in pakistan uh, that were absolutely devastating for the community and mm. um, they submerged one third of the country we'll all recall you know headlines and images from that time and you know nearly 33 million people were impacted now over 800 households were sheltered from the floods uh by a flood protection wall built um as a part of WFP's food assistance for assets program mm. uh where people receive food or cash assistance while um restoring ecosystems or like in this case building infrastructure for their community mm. now the wall protected the houses of 15 villages as well as apple orchards now limiting disruption to lives and livelihoods um this is just one example but you know across across the globe wfp is working on similar programs aimed at building self sufficiencies and resilience of communities and 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 as i mentioned it goes hand in hand this long term work goes hand in hand with our emergency work uh, sometimes um it it takes longer to actually see uh, the outcomes but but when you are able to see the outcomes and when the community members are empowered and they and they speak you know uh, as part of the program uh, you can actually see the difference it is making to their lives yeah i mean as long as you know you can definitely see that uh, that it is making a big difference for them a positive difference and that's you know a step towards the right direction as well um thank you so much for 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 joining me and speaking to me ishita sumra and it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you as well getting some more insight in regards to some of the work that uh, that you are doing thank you so much thank you so much thank you for having me and thank you for shining the light on this issue it's a pleasure peace be upon you so that was ishita sumra who's a communications officer with the united nations world food program and they are currently in rome where the headquarters is actually situated and located as well as mentioned before 020 is the number for you to call i think that was quite an interesting interview as well to, and she sort of told us that there are check and balances in place it's not just about going out there and providing providing those people who 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 need the food who need the water who need the other uh, resources as well it's not just about providing that it's a it's it's, it's a bigger picture as well and obviously if they think on one of the one of the one of the questions which i asked them was that if they think 
that there is some sort of exploitations or some some something like that happening, something dodgy happening, that they ha- do have a helpline that they can call as well. If they think that something shady is going on, then they can make sure and call headquarters and ask, you know, is, it, is this supposed to be like this or that or that? And if everything, you know, if, if it checks all the boxes, then everything is fine. But, you know, it's it's not just about, it's not just about one community doing it or one party doing it, one uh, organization doing it. It's about all governments coming together, trying our best to, to, to eradicate this issue as well, because it is a big thing. The root causes of poverty can be many things. It can be, you know, the lack of good jobs, exploitation, like I mentioned before as well, long work hours and less pay or minimum wage so so low that it doesn't even pay the bills. You know, it could be lack of good good education where children are even being forced to go and work instead of, you know, instead of actually earning an education. There could be wars and conflicts going on in their particular region or their area social injustices weather change weather and climate changes as well there's a there's a whole load of different things and different ways in which you know this is actually or a lot of people come into poverty now the holy quran and islam tells us that how we should live our lives allah the almighty tells us that in chapter 2 verse 216 they ask thee what they shall spend say Whatever of good and abundant wealth you spend should be for parents and their relatives and orphans and the needy and the wayfarer. And whatever good you do, surely Allah knows it well. Allah the Almighty has given us this duty to fulfill His rights and of course to fulfill the rights of mankind. That is what the promised Messiah upon whom be peace actually came and told us again, reminded us. That this is what Islam actually is. It's not just to go outside and uh, go to the mosque and pray five times a day. It's not just about that. It's about fulfilling the rights of God as well as fulfilling the rights of mankind. Now, sometimes if you fulfill the rights of God, that's very, you know that's very good. But if you don't, if you're not fulfilling the rights of mankind, if you're not looking out for your brother and sister and your neighbor and you know the the orphans, the the wayfarers. If you're not looking out for the for, for the needy, then how are you fulfilling the rights of mankind? We have so many different opportunities. We can pay the zakat. Of course, that's not applicable for everyone. But those people who it does apply to, they need to pay zakat. Even here in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we have different funds, which are for the orphans, which are for the needy, which are for the widows, which are for the, the students, the poor students who can't even afford... Uh, uh, to to buy their books and literature we have different funds which are out there to help those people who are in need as well and when it comes when it comes to when it comes to helping others that puts that sort of satisfaction in our hearts as well to help even more people as well now there's obviously there's so much more that we can talk about but one of the things which I want to leave with you or leave this segment concluded segment is is that Allah the Almighty has taught us what our fundamental duty is. And the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has taught us again and again that these two things go hand in hand. One cannot flourish without the other. They are to fulfill the rights of God and to fulfill the rights of mankind. It is, of course, easier said than done. But when, when done, Allah the Almighty helps you to do even more than that as well. That's all we have time for for this part of the show, but do stay tuned and come back 
right after the news. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. As mentioned in the beginning of the show, that uh, in this part of the show we're going to be talking about cancer and how much it's how much is rising, how much cancer cases are rising in young people. Now, can- cancer is predominantly associated, or well, once was a pre- predominantly associated with advancing age. Those people who were aged or middle-aged or getting a bit older, cancer was one of the things which uh, you know which was in the discussion for those people, but for that demographic. But this has begun to manifest in alarming numbers amongst the younger demographic as well. And that, as I mentioned, it's alarming. Talking about stats and figures and this and that, we'll talk a little bit more about that during the during the course of the show. But the emergence of uh, of cancer in young people is a distressing trend that demands urgent attention and comprehensive understanding in terms of this as well. Worldwide, cancer diagnosis amongst under fifty have surged by nearly eighty percent in the last thirty years. And talking about some more statistics and this and that, we'll talk a little bit more about, that, more about that as the show progresses. But let's speak to our first guest for this part of the show, Sean Robinson Brown, who's cancer information and support. We'll talk us a little bit more about this, and they are from the Macmillan Cancer Support as well. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon, and welcome to the show. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for having me Thank on the so show. Much. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, just to begin with, could you? Elaborate on the specific support services which which the which are provided by Macmillan Cancer Support for for young individuals especially who are facing cancer diagnosis. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, we at Macmillan Cancer Support uh, pride ourselves on supporting everyone facing a cancer diagnosis, and that's whether they've got a cancer diagnosis themselves or they're supporting someone who who has a family member, a friend, um, and we. The support we provide ranges from trusted, giving trusted advice, uh, trusted advice and information on maybe practical issues, uh, empowering people to speak to those living similar experiences to them, and we can provide them with a listening ear, emotional support, uh, and that's both in person and virtually um, on our support line with a range of different teams. Mm. Um, we've also got support centres throughout the country. They're usually in hospitals. Um, that's face-to-face support um, with an online community um, which enables people to access peer support because we know how invaluable it is to be truly heard when you've got a cancer diagnosis um, and we've also got information on our website that's that you can uh, that people can be assured is trusted information mm-hmm. um, that can uh, be provided in uh, a number of different languages as well and, yeah. and booklets as well that people if they prefer to have things in their hand to, to read through we can provide those too. That's great. Um, when talking about when talking about resources and I know that the NHS and other uh, you know the, the, the whole public sector as always has, has a decrease when it comes to funding and all of these resources but <laughs> how can we effectively advocate for enhanced policies? and allocate sort of more funding in terms of resources as well 
to mm-hmm. to effectively address the increased rates of cancer amongst 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 young the, the younger demographic. It's a real challenge. Um, we're we're aware at Macmillan that despite still being quite rare in terms of in terms of very young people with cancer, yeah. uh, children's cancer in children accounts for less than one percent of all new cancer cases in the UK. That's between 2016 and 2018, according to Cancer Research UK. Um, but instances are are higher than they were in the early 90s um, and the needs of, of the younger demographic are quite different to, to people who are who are elderly um, we're hearing about how long waits for cancer care are causing anxiety uh, at an already very anxious time um, and too many people are facing those delays to cancer care mm. with their world already turned upside down um, NHS staff are doing the very best they can but yeah. the system is stretched to breaking point so um, there are a lot of ways that, that people can can push for that sort of change um, one thing that they can do is to get involved with Macmillan's push to help us call on the government to support the NHS uh, to reduce waiting times. That's um, That could be by signing our What Are You Waiting For mm. uh, campaign banner through our website. Um, you can share cancer stories with us about long waits people you may know have had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can join our campaign network. You can also speak to your local MP and see whether they are part of the all-party parliamentary groups that there's, there's two there's one that's a group on cancer and another that's a group on children teenagers and young adults with cancer you, you spoke before about how you provide different sort of information booklets and leaflets to which are readily available in different languages as well to make it to make more people you know know about what you know this particular uh, i mean different sorts of cancer as well mm-hmm. when you talk about cancer and different things which are related to that are there any prevalent misconceptions, maybe, which are mm-hmm. which surround current cancer amongst the younger people, and what sort of steps can be taken to to address those issues and rectify those problems? That's a really good question. Um, there are there are huge misconceptions, uh, and and our reluctance to talk about cancer as a as a society yeah. in general. Yeah that because it's seen as a stigma and a sort of oh well I need to deal with this on my own or other people won't want to listen to talking about this but um, there, there can be quite wide-ranging ones from thinking that everybody's born with a cancer gene um, mm. and that living near electricity pylons can give you cancer mm. ranging all the way to if you don't inhale when you're smoking you won't get cancer or oh. even eating too much ketchup can cause you cancer so yeah. um, there's, there's there's some that we may think of as quite out there and and you know don't be silly that of course that doesn't happen but mm. it's it stems from not wanting to talk about it right. um people quite often think that their questions are going to be silly questions and we always we very often say on the support line there's no such thing as a silly question that's exactly what we're there to yeah. to talk about and to try and answer um and, and fam- friends and family as well you know if 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 friends and family surrounding somebody with cancer give the person who's got the diagnosis that sort of feeling that they're safe to ask them questions they, they, mm. it's okay to not know the answers that's that's absolutely fine you can always find out through a trusted source um and and if you're the person with the cancer ask loads of questions there, there's loads of 
people there to to help you to find the answers. Yeah. I mean, that is reassuring. That is good to hear as well, that there is mm-hmm. support which is readily available. And a lot, there are a lot of people who are willing to, to actually listen to people, speak to people, answer their questions as well, which is mm-hmm. quite positive. Mm-hmm. Talking about this whole process of getting, you know, get, getting more information and getting rid of all of these misconceptions and the stigma that you, that you spoke about before as well. Once a patient, a cancer patient, goes through that process, and we're talking about post-treatment, uh, now as well what does that sort of survivorship look like and and what resources are readily available or in place to assist their sort of reintegration into into normal life and just get back out there it's it's a really important time for people um we find that we that we speak to we we get a huge amount of of calls and contacts from people who who have reached that stage of of being post-treatment um expectations are huge so Mm. post-treatment just like treatment itself can impact young cancer patients in very different ways one from one from the other no two people's experience will be the same Uh, plans can change relationships may look different and that can be a big upheaval um and that can add difficulty emotionally when the, the person is already dealing with significant emotional, physical changes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes people we speak to mention the, the structure that they had before goes away. So they've had a clear pattern, a clear uh, timetable of treatment and appointments and things like that. When that finishes, the support that goes alongside that sometimes ebbs away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so knowing that there are still charities usually or association support groups that are there for people to reach out for is is so important Um, and and so is pressure that people put on themselves so there's so much pressure to be normal um, and and there's no such there's no such thing what normal looks like for you as somebody with a a cancer diagnosis having got through treatment is very different from your previous normal the normal from other people who are at the same sort of stage as you Um, and it's important to remember that young people have got certain rights as well under equality legislation uh, to make sure they get the support they need in studying in working um, and there's resources available from uh, from us as I mentioned but Young Lives Versus Cancer the Teenage Cancer Trust um, uh, Cancer Research UK are all very well-trusted sources um so it, it's worth having a look to see to try and gain as much information as possible yeah absolutely absolutely and just la- la- lastly there then in, in what ways can our listener engage and contribute to supporting the initiatives of Macbeth support cancer support um they can Follow uh, Macmillan Cancer Support on social media. Certainly, we're we're on. I think we're on all of them, yeah. um, and and share support that's available to family and friends. Sometimes that has that has a bigger impact than you would imagine. Just through somebody seeing uh, the support that that uh, that Macmillan Cancer Support, for example, has means that they then know something that's available to them that they weren't aware of before. Right. Um, they can, as I mentioned before, they can get involved in things like our com- campaigns and just be ready to listen to people as mm. well, uh, if needed. Um, but we're here if you, if 
people needed to call us our numbers 0808-808-0000 and we're open every day of the year um from eight in the morning till 8 p.m so bank holidays all that sort of stuff yeah. included yeah. Uh, and our websites uh I mean, I think that's great that you've uh, let the listeners know about the social medias and and how they can get in touch with uh, with you as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, your your help is readily available. I think talking and uh, listening is you know is key. I think that's vital, mm-hmm. just like you mentioned as well. Sean, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you so You're much. Have a lovely day. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Peace be upon you. That was Sean. Robinson Brown from Cancer Information and Support. And I think, like like we were talking about, like what she said as well, that that talking process, that getting through that threshold of you know getting out of that, getting out of your comfort zone, and making sure that it's not it's not it's not a taboo, it's not something to look down upon. Yes, you may have a lot of different questions, but talking about those questions and getting the answers to those questions is very important because, like she mentioned, that. There is a lot of misconceptions out there. There are a lot of things, a lot of stigma, and a lot of people think that they, you know, various various different things. It could be, like you, like she said, a lot of people think that eating too much ketchup that can that can maybe cause you to get cancer or various different things as well. And sometimes they might seem bizarre, but those things won't be bizarre. Or those things would be in your mind still, unless you talk about those problems, unless you actually come outside and speak to professionalists and speak to people who are from the trust, people who are from the charities, people who are from the NHS and, and the doctors, specialists who are out there. And they will, you know, when you talk to them about these problems, your your problems will, 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 will go away. And obviously that misinformation that you have would would be replaced by 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 backed up credible information. And that is what that is what we want. That is what we need as well. Let's speak to our next guest who's on the line with us, Dr. Johnston Shaw, who's a trustee at Fight Bladder Cancer Charity. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, Doctor. Hello, Eric, and thank you for asking Thank you so much for joining us. Just to begin with, Doctor, what obstacles does your charity encounter in, in raising awareness about bladder cancer? Oh, I'm really glad that you raised the issue of awareness. That's the first priority for our charity, both with public and health professionals. Early presentation, and we call it with stage one or local disease of bladder cancer, where it's confined just to the bladder itself, has a five to 10 year survival with over 90% survival. Stage two is what I had, um, where the tumor invades the bladder wall. That has a 70% 70 five year survival rate. And that was me yesterday. But mm. very late presentation, which is called stage four, has spread to the other organs such as the lungs or the liver, oh. and that has a much worse survival rate. Right. So Fight Bladder Cancer is a small charity, and we haven't got any of the high profile or famous yet with mm. bladder cancer willing to help us. So if there's anybody out there, they can get in touch. But as opposed to the other cancers, which perhaps have a higher profile, such as prostate, bowel, and breast, Right, There's yeah. currently no screening test, such as the PSA blood test. Um, so early presentation is absolutely crucial to get these people that are the early stages of the disease, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely, absolutely. 
Like you mentioned, I think I think awareness is 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 also very very much important when it comes to this as well. Doctor, just talking about talking about the the different demographics which are out there. How does bladder cancer present differently in younger persons? Younger person, I'm talking about it could be thirty five to forty under forties compared to the sort of the older demographic. Yes, absolutely. Although bladder cancer affects tends to affect older patients. It can affect younger people as well. So symptoms like blood in the urine are often dismissed by younger people as less serious issues, and that can delay diagnosis. So any such symptoms should prompt a consultation or advice from a doctor. Um, So with men of any age, visible blood in the urine needs checked out. And with younger women, I think that's really what you're asking about, they often Mm. dismiss blood in the urine maybe as cystitis Hmm. or UTIs is the other term they use. So if this keeps happening, especially if no infection is found on perhaps testing a urine sample, that needs checked out to make sure these symptoms don't represent a cancer. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important that the checks are in place as well. And uh, if the checks are, are not being done, then, you know, you don't want it to go to stage four where you know like you mentioned it goes to other spreads into other organs as well then it can become quite detrimental as well doctor are there any misconceptions because i want to talk about we spoke to our previous guests and different misconceptions about cancer as as a whole but this specifically are there any common misconceptions about bladder cancer amongst the younger population which 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 you think that it needs to be addressed absolutely there are several misconceptions about bladder cancer, particularly with younger people that need addressing. Firstly, many people think that bladder cancer is just the old person's disease. And while it is, as I've said earlier, commoner in older adults, younger individuals can also get diagnosis. So awareness of symptoms is key regardless of age. Hmm. Secondly, there's a belief that bladder cancer is solely linked to smoking. Right. So while smoking is a significant risk factor, exposure to chemicals or other environmental factors may also play a role. So it's not just a smoker's condition. Okay. So that if any symptoms that we've described are developing, it's crucial that early detection is is done so that effective treatment can be undertaken. Hmm. Doctor, when it comes to when it comes to bladder cancer, and when it comes to those people who contract this as well, contract this illness, this disease, where is it more common? Or if you would just like to present that out there for the listener as well, that is it more common between men or women, or is it both, or could it be any? And what are those steps that that people can take to prevent? Or you know, or you you spoke about different things to look out for. Maybe there's some blood in the urine or various other things as well. But if there's anything that can actually that we can look out for to to make sure that we can maintain that or decrease that as much as possible or even treat that. Sure. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because bladder cancer is actually twice as common in men than women. Right. Right. But over overall outcomes and mortality tends to be worse in women. Okay. as they tend to present much later in life, and particularly in the older age group, they perhaps have recurrent urine infections or cystitis, 
and they go along just taking antibiotics repeatedly um, and health professionals may treat them like this as well, perhaps for good reason, but these are the very type of patients that can be missed. The peak rate of bladder cancer is mainly in the 85 to 89 age groups, but they have much poorer outcomes. Yeah. Uh, some factors can, can't be prevented, like old age or environmental risks perhaps, but quitting smoking is really the major thing. Right. And there's also good evidence that working with some chemicals, as I mentioned above, using perhaps rubber, leather, printing materials, textiles and the paint industry, so that employers in these situations have a responsibility to protect their, their workers or perhaps help them identify and take part in education and awareness of bladder cancer. You spoke about uh, smoking being linked or heavily linked with this as well. Is there something else that people can change in their lifestyle that can prevent it as well? Maybe you know, there's some particular sort of food that they can eat more or they can drink less fizzy drinks or alcohol, some other things as well that you would like to discuss as well. Yes, absolutely. With, with, as with any cancer, I think that a good lifestyle is protective against cancer. The evidence against um, for certain types of foods isn't out there. Smoking is really the main thing. Yeah. Um, it is higher in, in, in poor deprivation, perhaps, so improving um, people's living conditions and yeah. the way that they live with exercise and all these other things are paramount as well but smoking is really perhaps the main thing Absolutely. that's where the evidence is yeah that's where the evidence is now what assistance and resources are accessible or readily available for individuals especially the youngsters who have been diagnosed with bladder cancer and what can they do what can their families do to 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 help them with or to get that assistance that they need Absolutely. I'm really glad that you asked that question because like myself, um, mm. five years ago, yeah. patients are really terrified when they reach any kind of diagnosis yeah, I'm sure, of I'm sure. bladder cancer and their families are just the same. So with Fight Bladder Cancer, I would recommend our website, www.fightbladdercancer.co.uk, mm. which has links to a wealth of information, including really helpful and informative patient information with links about the condition and particularly all the treatments and it's specifically designed for patients and their carers, families and friends. There's also a very popular online forum via Facebook which is only for bladder cancer patients and carers but it's absolutely fantastic and you can get lots of practical advice and support from people going through the same as you are. And the charity can also set you up with a bladder buddy. Right. And if that makes any sense, there will be somebody, <laughs> yeah. perhaps like myself, as close as possible to what you're going through, your age group, your demographics. Right. So they, they can give you one-to-one support and advice. And Fight Bladder Cancer also works with an amazing charity, Maggie Centres UK. Throughout the UK, they give specialist support and many have bladder cancer support groups within their buildings. Um, I, I have been in one for a number of years and found that amazingly fantastic and very, very supportive. Fight Bladder Cancer also has a helpline, 
on the website with link, with um, links to the telephone number, online support, and the email. And there's a telephone number. I don't know if you want me to give you that. Yeah, you can give that. You can give that. Yes. The telephone number, and there is a link on the website, is 01844 And if there's nobody there to answer you immediately, you can leave a message and someone will get back to you and That's offer great. you support or provide you information. That's great. That's absolutely great. I mean, with that, with the help available, with the assistance available, that would make people's lives much, much more easier uh, as well with, you know, with the assistance that you guys provide. Dr. Johnson Shaw, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you as well, getting more information about uh, about this, about bladder cancer and how, you know, making sure that the information and support assistance is available for people and families as well. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I hope that was okay. Yes, that was, that was wonderful. Peace be upon you. That was Dr. Johnson Shaw, who's a trustee at Fight Bladder Cancer Charity, which I think they're doing a great job. And like Macmillan Cancer Research as well, they're also doing a great job as well in terms of fighting cancer, talking about these misconceptions and getting the right sort of information out there, credible information out there, so that people can understand what cancer is all about. It shouldn't be a stigma. It shouldn't be something that you just close up. It's not something that if someone has cancer, it can be as if that person is on on their own but there are people specialists who are who, who are readily available who want to help who want who are waiting for people to call them to talk to them and speak to them as well so that they can provide them with the assistance that they that the that the that the patients of cancer need and it can be a difficult time but it's obviously it's all it's, it is all about Get trying your best to get through this process as well. Like I mentioned, it is difficult, and it's, I'm not saying it's easy and whatsoever. But that that willingness can can help you as well. That helping hand, speaking to someone, talking to someone, can help. It can do wonders as well. Another thing which can do wonders is to have that trust in God Almighty, that faith in God Almighty as well. And that's something that I want to touch upon also. That is because. Where Allah the Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran that, and when I am ill, talking about in in terms of the man's perspective, that when I am ill, it is He who restores me to health. Chapter twenty six, verse eighty one. This means that the 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 things which which I do, or which I you know I put myself in in harm's way. Our doctor, Doctor Johnson Shaw, spoke about this as well that. Smoking is one of the things which are, which is heavily linked to cancer. The Holy Quran tells us that don't do things which which you know are going to be harmful. Don't put yourself in in harm's way. Don't put your own hands in in That's what the Holy Quran says. That don't put your own hands in 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 a misfortune. If you know something is is going to be bad for you, why do you do that? Don't do that. We know that smoking is bad for us. We know it's bad for our lungs, and it can cause it can cause it can cause cancer, not just lung cancer, but other forms of cancer as well. We have various other things which Allah the Almighty tells us not to do as well. Allah the Almighty tells us not to drink alcohol because alcohol the 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 the, the disadvantages of that very much outweigh the advantages of that. Yes, there are some advantages, but that's very minimum. 
but the disadvantages are so much and there is sin in that as well and it it puts us you know it, it it leads us it leads us astray it leads us away from the remembrance of God almighty and when we talk about these intoxicants when we talk about these drugs and these other things as well we know that these things are harmful for us let's stay away from those things if Allah the Almighty is telling us to do something let's listen to him we talk about or other people say that you know if there is a god then why why is there so much suffering why why am i going through this trouble and that trouble why is that person in you know contracted cancer and this and that the thing is is that let's for example if we just put god aside for a second and if you just look at our world and what we're doing how, how what we're doing is our own fault if we smoke and then we blame someone else oh you know well, why i'm smoking but why am i getting why am i coughing all the time why am i getting lung you know why have i contracted lung cancer why is this happening why is that happening you smoked yourself sometimes someone might say that you know i don't even smoke or i don't even do this and that i don't even drink but i still got this the thing is is that what have you done to try to to better yourself what have you done to try to get away and stay away from all of these vices and bad things as well if you have stayed away from these bad things if you have stayed away from from smoking cigarettes and drugs and 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 and, and alcohol and all these things but still you get but still something happens to you then you should know that Allah the Almighty will definitely will definitely make your life much easier in the next world and that is what us as muslims believe in we believe in the hereafter we believe that this life that we have on earth this is a very limited life this life is a very short life that we have right now the actual life this is not our actual life a lot of people mistake this to be the only life but that's not it your actual life is in the hereafter and all the things that you've done in this world all the good things that you've done allah the almighty will bless you and reward you for all those things if you've gone through a troublesome time if you've got cancer if you've got another illness if you've got something else that's you know a trial that you went that you went through which was so difficult such a difficult process that you went through but you went through that or you're going through that and you don't sort of fall in your fall in your in in your spiritual level you don't fall in terms of your 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 connection with god almighty or your 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 link and your your relationship with god almighty then he will take you out of that and he will bless you in the hereafter as well he can bless you in this world but he can bless you in the hereafter so much more so as well and that is what keeps muslims going that is one of the driving forces that is why i'm talking about this because the you know one of my friends was uh, got you know got got blood cancer got 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 leukemia and one of the things which kept him going was that he knew that there was one god and he used to pray to one god and that resilience that 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 comfort that he used to tell us that he, the comfort that he used to get from praying to god from reciting and listening to the holy quran that kept him going from that troublesome and difficult time that that he the, the the time that he was in hospital and these are some things which believers do because they have that connection with god because they have that 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 fundamental belief that you know this is just a temporary life the actual life is going to come in the hereafter if i become strong and if i don't fall on my on my on my part and if i stay firm 
then Allah the Almighty will bless me so much more in the hereafter. 0208687-7878 is the number for you to call. Tell me what you think about this as well. Did you think that this established relationship with God Almighty, this connection with God Almighty, that prayer that you do to God, that prostration that you do towards God, can that get can that get you out of that trouble? And does that help? I know for for a fact that it does. That sincere connection with God Almighty can sincerely, Allah the Almighty, can bless you so much that you wouldn't even understand. Allah the Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran that those people who are the, you know, God-fearing people and those people who listen to God Almighty, Allah the Almighty blesses them so much so that they don't even know where their help and assistance came from. But Allah the Almighty would help them from where they, where they didn't even know their help can come from there. So that is what Allah the Almighty wants. He is ready to help us. It is for us to take that first step as well. 0208687-7878 is the number for you to call to tell me what you think about this. I'm going to take a very short break and right after that, when we come back from the short break, we'll come back and speak a little bit more about this, uh, the demographics and how much they are shifting the, the or how young people are actually contracting cancer as well. And uh, hopefully we'll speak to another guest as well. to the Voice of Islam Radio. So for for me in 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 my life what I did was I said to um it came to a point in my life where I said I need spirituality. Right. I need to know about, there must be more to life than just working, getting up in the morning, going to work at nine o'clock, coming home at five o'clock, going to bed, waking up the next day and doing the same thing over and over again. There must be more to life than just eating food and taking pleasure from a meal. Sure. There must be more to life than drinking a latte yeah. and taking pleasure in a latte. Yeah. And all of these thoughts take you towards spirituality. And when you know spirituality, that is to come to Allah. So, so that was how it started. But then what really, you know, practically for me, what happened was, I said to the, the various friends that I had at the time, you know, I believe in, I want to know about God, whether or not God exists, what would you advise me? So I spoke to a Christian, I spoke to a Buddhist, I spoke to a Muslim, I spoke to a, 
Hindu. a Hindu a little bit yeah. and also to an Ahmadi Muslim as well right. and they all gave me the same advice they all said Allah we believe in God we pray and God answers prayers sure. so what was very nice is all the different religions essentially gave the same advice right. when I did that then when I prayed then Allah answered my prayers right. and I prayed for the first time genuinely from my heart and Allah says that whenever the supplicant prays to him then he answers those prayers yeah. and Allah by the grace of by the grace of Allah Almighty then he answered my prayers and I believed in him for the first time and from there I continued those conversations and I said to the Christian what do you believe I said to the Muslim what do you believe and to the Hindu the same and to the Ahmadi Muslim and essentially to believe in Islam Ahmadiyat means you believe in all of Jesus's teachings all of Krishna's teachings all of Buddha's teachings but you have them clarified by the Holy Quran right. and then you accept the Prophet or the Imam Mahdi who's been sent by Allah in, in subservience to the Holy Prophet right. So to, to become an Ahmadi Muslim means that you actually accept everything that all of the others do but you are the most submissive to Allah because you accept a Prophet that has come so recently that to make that decision shows or inshallah it shows to Allah that I'm willing to follow you and not just my culture, not just my society but I'm willing to accept the one that you've sent in my, in my time, in my generation. You're listening to the Voice of Islam radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Our jihad is not a jihad of swords, guns or bombs. Our jihad is not a jihad of cruelty, brutality and injustice. Rather, our jihad is of love, mercy, and compassion. Our jihad is of tolerance, justice, and human sympathy. Our jihad is to fulfill the rights of God Almighty and of His creation. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. We're talking about 
cancer and how much it is rising amongst the younger demographic as well. We spoke to two guests before who spoke to spoke to us a little bit more about this as well. We spoke to Sean Robinson Brown from uh, Macmillan Cancer Support and talking about how young people are contracting different forms of uh, of cancer as well. But also we spoke about bladder cancer with Dr. Johnson Shaw and uh, you, know, you know how much that's rising as well amongst the amongst the younger demographic also. We're going to be speaking to Professor Dan Stark, who is a professor of teenage and young adult cancer research at Leeds Institute of Medical Research from the University of Leeds. Tell us a little bit more in terms of uh, of this as well. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Just to begin with, Professor, could you elaborate on the unique challenges which are faced by teenagers and young adults who have who have been diagnosed with cancer and how these challenges differ from those people who are maybe older and older adults, middle-aged as well? Thank you very much indeed. This is a really important question. Yes, absolutely. So cancer is always challenging. Illness of all sorts is always disruptive, but there are some really unique and important things about when cancer happens in young people such as this. And cancer, of course, is happening more and more over recent years in young people. Hmm. Um, The first and most important thing probably is the personal disruption. So cancer, obviously, a very important illness that has lots to be done to try and get the person through it. But when it happens at such a critical point in somebody's journey through life, it does really important things. It can take them away from other other young people like them. It can hugely disrupt their psychological well-being and mental health. Mm. It can disrupt their relationships, their work, their education, and impact upon their families. It can impact on body image at times when body image is so central to who somebody is when they're a a young adult or a teenager or a young adult like this. Mm. And it can impact on their personal control of their lives. Just when they're beginning to uh, make a life that's independent of of um, of what they did when they were children and make their own friendship groups and so on, suddenly they have this huge challenge to deal with and often need to return to the family, which is something they find difficult. It's um, the chance of survival from the cancer is is uh, something we are we we think is important to emphasise is it has has it has improved in recent times for young people with cancer mm. because of a focus on this problem, but it's not just improving as fast as it is in other groups. Mm. Cancer, once it's been diagnosed and treated, it brings lifelong problems with other problems in health that come later later as well. And yeah. young people, when they get cancer, have longer to live, and so there's much more important emphasis on things like their heart health and other illness. And the final thing to say about this is that young people have to get used to a hospital system when they develop cancer that is designed for mature adults who've got experience of life and experience of these complicated things happening. Um, And so getting young people through the system is complicated. And that's another unique challenge that we see. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, that that is really really helpful as well. Just talking a little bit more in terms of the lifestyle changes that you spoke, you spoke a bit about, about that as well. When children, be, you know, from when they get a bit more mature, we get into that adult mm. life as well. It's important to make quality life assessments um, mm. and 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 choices as well. Can you just re re-emphasize for us that how important that is 
in, yeah. especially when talking about you know how some things can actually lead to cancer and we spoke to our previous guest who said mm. that smoking is one of the one of the major concerns as well just mm. can you just tell us a little bit more about that maybe there's something else that you want to discuss yeah that's fine absolutely so in terms of what leads to cancer mm. in young people um um this cancer is caused by the environment that we live in yeah yeah. So trees get cancer, insects get cancer, people get cancer, animals get cancer. It's the environment we live in. And I don't mean environment in the sense of climate change and all of that stuff. Yeah. I mean uh, things like how much we're out in ultraviolet light, whether we breathe in tobacco or other toxins, mm. whether we pick up infections such as some viruses and where our hormones are and what our diet is like. So these are the things that explain why the cancer in young people is rising so much. Some people think it's maybe increased by 50% in the last 30 years, young onset cancers. And so where previously there were five cancers in young people, now there are seven or eight. So that's a big impact on young people's health. And cancer around the world in young people is one of the leading causes of disability, much more causes, much more disability than does substance use or diabetes. And it's the second highest disease causing death in young people, which, of course, is awful. When yeah. we think about the quality of life, we think about how we measure it and what it means. And there are different ways of doing that. Yeah. But maybe I'll pause there and, and, and listen to your questions further. When we talk about, uh, thank you for, for, for that as well. When you talk about when we see the integration of, of, of technology and yeah. uh, digital sort of digital health solutions, which are co- becoming more common as well. Yeah. How can that sort of support young ca- ca- cancer patients, particularly mm. in maintaining the, their quality of life? Yeah, that's really important. And when I think about this, which I do in my research and in the in the care that I provide to young people in the hospital, I think about it in sort of in three sort of levels. Mm. At the simplest levels, more and more hospitals and GPs, surgeries and so on are using electronic notes rather than the old paper notes that you used to see. And in those electronic notes, people can design portals. They can design apps so that people can see into their notes um, from their phone securely, and they they can understand more about what's happening about their health. And this is important to young people. It's about how it's similar to how their life is lived in other ways nowadays. It doesn't replace coming to see the doctor or coming to see the nurse or the social worker or the youth worker or whatever it might be. But it enhances that interaction and lets the time with the nurse or the doctor be used for more value. And that's quite simple, really. It's quite commonplace now. At the next level, we can do things that aren't very complex, but are important to be clear about. We can use the information that's collected in those electronic medical records to improve cancer outcomes faster. Hmm. We can use it to spot excellent practice with excellent results and share what that is. We can use it to identify where cancer outcomes aren't as good as we would want and, and therefore work in those areas. And then we should get really ambitious, couldn't we, in the third way. We could identify specific illnesses earlier using that data, find people with cancer faster, engage people who are receiving cancer treatment day by day, supporting them in apps and things like that. So these are all ways we could use digital data to maintain young people's quality of life. I think we should be able to do all of them, but everywhere should be able to do the simple ones. And then research programs should develop 
the more ambitious, more difficult ones uh, that I mentioned. I hope that helps. Yeah, of course, of course. You spoke earlier, Professor, about how different hospitals and different clinics and places where uh, treatment is available, most of the time it's, it's more dealt with the those people deal with more older people and older patients yeah. as well so how do we talking about the healthcare systems how do we sort of better tailor our mm. services to meet the unique needs for teenagers adolescents maybe y- young adults as well which do get diagnosed with cancer considering different problems such as clinical problems psychosocial aspects and various mm. different things as well thank you very much and so um uh, in the NHS um, in the UK, there are specialised cancer services for patients who are aged um, from 15 through to 24 when they get cancer. Hmm. Most right. people probably know that small children, when they get cancer, as little babies, very sadly, or toddlers, that they go to a special children's hospital where they get care around other children. But not everybody knows that teenagers and young adults get something similar. They can access something similar. There they get care around other young people. Hmm. The doctors and nurses and youth workers and mental health workers they can see and social support they can get. It's all tailored to young people. Hmm. Currently, only about half of the people in that age range know about and access those specialist services even if they only come into a large hospital the once to be seen and assessed and put in touch with other people who can help them um they don't do so which um and probably they they probably should that way they get an experience of patient-centered care um nurses doctors other other professionals who naturally intuitively understand young people and aren't surprised if a young people if a young person reacts to their cancer differently from what they would expect from an older person because they've seen it before they know they know how to deal yeah, with it of course those of specialist course. services are networked so there are what's called a principal treatment center which is a big hospital um in the center of a region and then a designated hospital which has got some services for young people mm. but not all the ones the principal treatment center has and then other hospitals that really um, have said of their own accord that they don't want to look after younger patients because they're not sure they can do it properly and so they've asked for those cases to be referred on so i think young people we can by using those specialist services where young people are cared for among their peers but with with doctors and nurses and other people who are expert in that um, even if it's only for one visit, is a really good way. And it's available to everybody on the NHS. It's part of how the NHS is set up. Um, thankfully, um, some people get better care in other ways. They get mm. better uh, scientific analyses done on their cancer if they go into a big hospital. Yeah. But not everybody. Some people's quality of life has actually been shown in my research and that of others to be made better. Mm. And even the cancer, the chance of getting over the cancer is made better by going into that big hospital. Not everybody has to go in and not everybody has to go in many times. I think it's important people know about these specialised services and access them if they want to in their region. Absolutely. How's that? I hope that's helped a little. 
That's that's helped quite a lot actually, <laughs> and uh, I think it's 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 been an absolute pleasure, Professor, speaking speaking to you as well, getting some more information. I'm sure that the listener benefited from uh, from this as well. It's 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 absolutely great information, and I think and I think that's key that there is you know awareness being being given and uh, making sure that people know that that there is information and there is specialized help and assistance out there for people as well. Thank you so much, Professor. Not at all. I'll just, if I've got one more second or not. Yes, yes. I'll just say that a lot of the work that we do on looking after young people is done by excellent charities, supported by excellent charities. You've had Macmillan on, and there are other charities, Teenage Cancer Trust, Young Life Versus Cancer, and I'm very grateful for them for what they've done, and the patients are in general. Mm. Um, It's really helpful if people get together in charitable groups and try and support projects and programs like this. And so if there are people who are interested to do something like that, um, get in touch with their local hospital and see what they can do, is what I'd say, and they could make a real difference in this area. That's absolutely great. Wonderful. Wonderful there. Professor Dan Stark, like I said before, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for your for, for your words and your uh, expertise in this field as well. And uh, have a lovely day ahead. Peace be upon you. Thank you very much indeed. Lovely to speak to you. All the very Thank best. You. you too. Peace be upon you there as well. Professor Dan Stark from uh, from Medical Research from the Institute of uh, or University of Leeds. He's a professor of teenage and young answer, uh, young cancer research at this particular institute as well. Now, when we talk about different illnesses or different things that we that we go through, it could be trouble sometimes, whatever it may be. There's just there's a few verses of the Holy Quran which I just want to conclude this uh, this show with, and that is from chapter two of the Holy Quran, verses one hundred and fifty six to one hundred and fifty eight. Allah the Almighty states, and we will try you with something of fear and hunger and the loss of wealth and lives and fruits. But give glad tidings to the patient, who when a misfortune overtakes them say, Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. It is these on whom are blessings from their Lord and mercy, and it is, and it is these who are rightly guided. We can understand that even by these verses and what the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has stated, the promised Messiah upon whom be peace, that the followers of, of, of his community, they will face various different forms of troubles and tribulations, whether they are from the sky, whether they are from the earth, whether they are from within ourselves, whether they are from other people around us. But those people who stay firm on their, on their faith, those people who stay firm on their belief and their conviction, they stay steadfast. Those are the ones, and of course, when they believe in God, those are the ones who will triumph at the end. And those are the ones who will be successful. And that is one way in which we can go through all of the problems which we are facing today in this world. Whether whether it's poverty, whether it's cancer, whether it's any other illness, we can face all of these problems with the, with the belief of God Almighty and the conviction of our faith as well. Now, it's been an absolute you know a jam packed uh, show with a lot of different different things to talk about but uh, hopefully we'll be back next time to speak about you know different topics as well but today's show was produced by Mahira Ramzin and Doris Amin Mirza thank you to them to our guests to technical department until next time assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah peace be upon you <laughs>